This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I am your host, Michael Ware. It has been a while since our last episode, but I'm excited to be back. I got to tell you, I mean, this uh, pandemic has not been affecting me in, in drastic ways, but it has required some some shuffling, some movement, uh, and some changes. Uh, and so my apologies for the bit of a break. The good news is we have so much to cover on this episode. And I think I'm going to be able to be uh, one, one of the first folks to uh, break down and maybe even share with you for the first time, if you uh, haven't learned by the time this episode airs, who the Biden campaign's uh, faith hire is going to be. And we, we, we now know, and I'm, I'm excited to discuss that with you. Before we jump into the show, the AND Campaign's first book, Compassion and Conviction, the AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement, comes out uh, on Tuesday, July 21st, and we're excited about it. We're seeing folks all over the country and really seeing international orders. It's um, It's been a beautiful thing to see. InterVarsity Press uh, informed me this morning uh, that they are uh, out of stock. Uh, that will be addressed uh, in the coming hours, in the coming day. And so you don't have to, you can go to Ivy Press to order. You can go to Amazon, go to your independent bookstore, and go to Byron at Hearts and Minds. But uh, would really encourage you to pre order this book. Uh, uh, we're, we're excited about it. We think it's going to be a resource for churches and Christians, particularly in this season. Um, and uh, I'm excited uh, to get it out into the world. Uh, all right, let's let's jump in. There are really three buckets of issues I want to discuss. We don't have a guest this episode because I wanted to sort of catch us up on the state of the race. And then obviously we'll be bringing back guests in, in future episodes. Let's talk about this Biden campaign hire. It was released in an ABC News uh, story this morning. I expect we're going to see more reporting specifically on the faith hire, but this story focused on a a batch of coalitions hires. So the Biden campaign has hired a disability outreach person, a Jewish outreach person, and then an overall faith-motivated voter um, outreach director and someone I've known for a long time, Josh Dixon. You know, at this stage of the race, Josh is the exact kind of hire that, that I would have made. Josh is one of the few individuals to have done faith outreach for the Democratic Party. Uh, he was there at the DNC in 2012 when I was running faith outreach for President Obama's reelect. This is someone who knows the ropes. He knows the terrain. This election is in four months. He's going to be able to hit the ground running. As I noted on Twitter, uh, that's uh, uh, figurative. It's also literal. J- Josh is actually a marathon runner. And so, so he'll, he'll really be able to hit the ground running. Um, he'll be able to work well with Derek Harkins at the DNC as Josh was 
Reverend Harkin's deputy in 2012. Uh, Josh has relationships with several folks in the Biden campaign already, and so there's not going to be a whole lot of wasted time and sort of building trust and sort of getting to know you sessions like Josh is just going to be able to get there, do the work. I, I think he's a he's a good fit uh, for this moment. And so we're going to try and get Josh on the show. We're going to take a look to see what kind of work he's doing. I can say I think we're going to see significant broad outreach just last week. And I know this because several folks who were on the call told me the Biden campaign did a call with Asian American Christians. They've been engaging a really broad swath. Uh, but the fact that they're doing calls with Asian American Christians, it shows a um, an openness and energy that was certainly lacking in 2016. I- I'd, be, I'd be really surprised if there was a call like that in 2016. And so it's a it's a good sign. And look, overall, the Biden campaign has had a good a good couple of weeks here. I think going on polling and polling only means so much, especially at this at this stage still. But I think we're moving into a a phase of this of this race where uh, we're in a moment where Biden is the clear clear favorite. If the election were held to, was held today you could have pretty significant confidence that the Biden was going to get the 270 electoral votes he, he needs. The Trump campaign fired their campaign manager, who will stay on to do the digital and data uh, work, but they, they have a new campaign manager. And so that's a, that's a concession from the Trump campaign that things aren't exactly going to plan. And the Biden campaign is just firing on, on all cylinders from from what I see. When it comes to faith, I see a um, a sensitivity when it comes to how they're dealing with faith, a, a, a maximalizing of who they can appeal to. Here's a clear example. They put out an ad in the last couple of weeks. It was about leadership and how, how Biden would be a, a, a leader who would restore America's credibility. The ad featured just a brief shot of Trump's antic at St. John's. The temptation and really the pitfall that I wouldn't put past some of the uh, Democrats in general and some of the folks that Biden uh, beat in the primary would be to make that a moment that's about separation of church and state and why is a president holding a Bible? Dun, dun, dun. And look, the folks can make those critiques. There's an element, certainly, to the separation of church and state uh, sort of angle. Um, politically, that's just not going to be the most effective route to take. Um, and the Biden campaign didn't swing at that pitch they 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 went for what's going to bring runners home <laughs> they they went they went for that uh that home run um which was to point out um that this is a man who tear gassed folks so he could get a photo op and that this is a man who's willing to that Trump is willing to aggrandize himself really no matter what the cost i saw that ad and i thought okay they know what they're doing and let let other people take on more directly religious angles, such as the Lincoln Project, which put up an ad just this week that was a 
a rollout of, of a handful of evangelical Republicans describing why they weren't going to vote for Trump and why they were going to vote for Biden. Those kinds of ads need to be in the mix. Glad to see someone spending money on them. I mean, this is this is an important opportunity. It's an important slice of things. Uh, and so it's going to be interesting to see how Lincoln Projects feels about that ad, if it encourages them to double down there, spend more money on that slice of things, or if they feel like you know, that was their contribution to sort of the explicitly faith kind of messaging. But but it's going to be interesting to see what outside groups do. And now that there's a faith director at the Biden campaign, you're going to be looking to see what kind of synergy there is. Is the Biden campaign able to put out faith messaging that outside groups are able to leverage and sort of uh, a steward in, a, um, in an effective way? Are there big moments from the Biden campaign? One, two, three big moments, a big interview, a big speech that are directed towards faith voters. Uh, now those are live questions um, because, uh, as I've said on the show, the Biden campaign actually already had several staff that were faith attuned, that, that understood faith voters to a certain extent. Now that they have made that faith director higher, uh, it indicates that now they, they have their team uh, and they're ready to go on this stuff. So we're going to keep an eye on Josh as much as we can catch him. He's, he's, he's a fast dude. Uh, and so we're going to keep our eye on Josh. Hopefully we'll, we'll get him on the, uh, on the show. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be a busy four months for him. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see what the Biden campaign does. So we'll keep an eye on that. Keep an eye on how the Trump campaign tries to shift and alter after hiring, uh, now bring on a new campaign manager, but things are things are developing here. All right, when we get back, I'm going to talk about the Supreme Court and uh, how the recent decisions might affect 2020. Uh, this is the Faith 2020 podcast. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So really want to talk about two buckets uh, of things. First, the Supreme Court and the decisions that have uh, come out, the way that they'll affect the 2020 race. And then in the second segment, uh, just want to provide a bit of an overview of some interesting things I've been seeing from the Biden campaign and what we can expect from faith moving forward. So first, I wrote for The Washington Post following the Bostock case. And we talked about the sort of details of the case on the church politics podcast. And so I'm not going to go into too much depth here. The point of the matter is not that Bostock is a death knell for religious freedom in, from my point of view. As a matter of fact, I, I'm someone who, I'm someone who's always argued that we should be aiming, we should be striving in our society for post-Obergefell, 
for a pluralistic working out of differences so that we can all live together. Bostock, depending on what the next few years look like, could be a step in that process, by which I simply mean, and again, if you want to hear more about the case, listen to the Church Politics Podcast. I don't have the time to, to sort of go through every every nook and cranny here. But the, the, the baseline here is that the opinion written by uh, Neil Gorsuch basically made the Employment Non-Discrimination Act with religious exemptions law. So basically, LGBT protections were, were read into Title VII. But RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which is one of the principal religious freedom statutes, Gorsuch called a super statute. Now, there are downsides to this. One is it sets up years of litigation. Two, in my view, the Supreme Court really shouldn't be deciding these things. This should be congressional action. But in a vacuum of legislative inaction, Supreme Court was going to step in, and I think people were deluding themselves if they thought that they could perpetually sort of stave off legislative action on these rights, and the Supreme Court wasn't going to step in, the same Supreme Court that, by a 5-4 decision, legalized same-sex marriage. Like, it just wasn't going to happen. So my argument is not that Bostock is, again, sort of a death knell for religious freedom. My argument is that the repercussions of Bostock— The meaning of Bostock, which was to cover LGBT folks in civil rights protections, is exactly what the right wing said was a death knell for religious freedom. The religious right groups have been saying this whole time, which is why they said, you know, Republicans can't support ENDA, even with robust religious freedom protections, they can't support anything. If it's a law that recognizes the LGBT people exist in this country. It can't be written into the law because as soon as it's written into the law, as soon as LGBT folks are covered by civil rights protection, then everything else is a fait accompli that uh, sort of it's inevitable where it goes from there. So judging by the religious rights standards, Bosak is a complete utter disaster. Now they'll change their tune. They'll say, you know, there's a new fight we have to take on. They need to keep raising money they need to, uh, keep marshalling folks to their side. But the fact of the matter is that they, um, by their own standards, Bostock, written by Neil Gorsuch, who, you know, obviously was Trump's appointee, one of the reasons why Christians had to overlook everything immoral about this president, every policy disagreement they had with this president, they had to overlook it so that Neil Gorsuch could be on the court to protect religious freedom by the religious rights standards, and Neil Gorsuch did not do that. So the argument I'm making in the Washington Post is, you know, this really ought to free up social conservatives to reconsidering the bargain that they made by supporting this president. You know, it's it's important to note there have been religious free, you know, the other religious freedom decisions, several of them uh, in the last year, and even in this current sort of batch of cases, including uh, an important case we discussed on the Church Politics Podcast concerning the ministerial exception. That was a decision joined by Elena Kagan, Obama's appointee. So, (laughs) you know, the argument that there needs to be religious right folks, social conservatives, social moderates who have religious freedom concerns, right? If you have a smidgen of concern around religious freedom, then you need to overlook everything else about Trump. Make sure that Trump is able to elect more judges 
like Gorsuch, even though Gorsuch decided in a way that was completely contrary to what they told us we had to vote for Trump for four years ago, in order for Trump to beat Biden, who was the vice president of the guy who appointed Elena Kagan to the bench, who decided in favor of religious freedom (laughs) in, in these cases. And so I just don't think that argument's gonna hold up. And when I, to be clear, when I say I don't think that argument's gonna hold up, I'm not saying religious rights fleeing Trump en masse. No, what I'm saying is that persuadable voters who believe religious freedom is important, who believe the courts from a conservative perspective, from a social conservative perspective, are important, but it's not the only thing they vote on, that those voters should feel a bit more freed up to weigh differently their concerns about Trump and to take Trump's sort of bullying, uh, Trump's sort of suggestion that he's their only way to freedom, uh, (laughs) that he's their only protection, a little less seriously. Like, you know, maybe Trump, who's not a lawyer, who wasn't involved in politics until, you know, five years ago, who doesn't know anything really about public policy, maybe he's not the guy you want to entrust your future to and your kid's future to. And this is just one example of that. That's a political argument. Now, the problem, of course, is that Biden can't make this argument, (laughs) even if he wanted to, and I'm not sure he does. But Biden can't make the argument that religious freedom is going to be safer in my hands because his base would just tear apart. Some of his base would be thrilled. Other aspects of his base would not be so thrilled. So especially on Bostock, Biden couldn't really dig in there and say, like, come on now, vote for me now that Gorsuch, like he, he he's glad Gorsuch decided the case the way that uh, the way that he did. What's going to be interesting, and the real test here is like Biden doesn't need to make the case that he's going to be better on abortion from a pro-life perspective or better on religious freedom from, you know, a conservative position. What he might be able to do is extend an olive branch in this moment that just suggests that he's not going to be antagonistic on these things, that he's not going to be looking for payback or to sort of like aggressively... um, Move Like, look, when, I just want to be clear here so folks don't understand. There are going to be things the Biden administration does that social conservatives are going to need to oppose. <laughs> and that, frankly, that from my point of view, the people should oppose. I don't think the Biden administration is going to get everything right from my point of view. That's never been my argument. And you can trust that I'll be uh, someone who speaks out when the Biden administration does something that that I don't agree with. The question is whether Biden can, you know, so for instance, when Biden gets in, the Mexico City policy is going to be overturned like it was when Clinton came into office, like it was when Bush came into office, like it was when Obama came into office. These sort of executive things that switch over by administration, like that's going to happen. The question is, can Biden send a signal that he's not going to be vetoing spending legislation because it contains the Hyde Amendment. Can he send a message that he's not going to be uh, looking to pit rights against one another, uh, against each other, and that he's not coming into office with an agenda to make life difficult for religious colleges, religious charities, that he actually views these institutions as actually an important part of America, that, that actually this sense of association, the values they promote, 
uh, the service that they provide is actually is actually critical to America's flourishing. That's the kind of message he could send. After the break, I'll talk a little bit about the kind of message I'm hearing from the Biden campaign now, how much it aligns with that, and what I see as the future of the Biden campaign uh, being when it comes to faith. But but let's take a break for commercials. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. Uh, Stephanie Tate on Twitter, at Steph Tate Writes, I believe, uh, reached out with a question about evangelical attrition. Basically, the, 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 the question is, which others have asked, frankly, which I've been asking, which is particularly about, about white evangelicals. And, and the question is basically, if in reaction to 2016, at least in part, those who identified as white evangelical in 2016 and voted against Trump no longer identify as white evangelicals, then could it be that, you know, fewer white evangelicals as a raw number you know, vote for Trump this time around, but the the margins look the same or potentially even worse. In other words, what if the 2016 election sort of scared a bunch of non-Trump supporting white evangelicals from white evangelicalism? Or, or I don't mean scare, I mean, led them to reject white evangelical, uh, the white evangelical label. And how will we think about the exit polls that way? Well, I mean, like there's in the most pure sense, we'll be able to um, at least we'll, we'll have raw numbers and we'll be able to compare. Um, now, we won't have those numbers tagged to individuals. So from a simplistic analysis, you'll never know sort of for sure. There's more sophisticated analysis where we could tag folks to their voting record and see if evangelicals who voted in 2016, maybe didn't vote at all in 2020. Uh, Pew has a major voter file. Potentially, they'll do research to follow up with evangelical voters that they have in their files, that they know how they voted in 2016, see how they voted in 2020, see if they're still identifying as as evangelical. All that's going to be interesting. Uh, I just want to point out two things. One, Biden's going to have an opportunity here. One sort of micro-targeting demographic I'm looking at in the Rust Belt are evangelicals who are former Catholics. Thinking specifically about Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. This is a slice of voters to to watch. The, The second thing I'd say is, really, for the last four cycles, we've seen in these predictions that you know, finally, this is the election where religion is going to matter less, where we're going to see a major drop off, where white evangelicals are in particular are going to lose their power um, are, are going to be a much, you know, there's just going to be a huge drop off. That was the narrative going into 2016. I think the Clinton campaign bought into it a bit, <laughs> a bit too much, to say the least. Uh, and of course, it didn't happen when it comes to white evangelicals. White evangelicals have accounted for uh a little over a quarter of the electorate, um, basically in in all the elections this 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 century, all all the presidential elections. I hesitate to say this because the last thing I want to do is 
influence the conversation uh, in a way that would uh, lead folks to plan around something that may not be the case. But one thing to flag, <laughs> one, one thing to think about as potential future is a presidential election where Biden wins and we finally see white evangelical portion of the electorate drop off significantly. So maybe white evangelicals only account for 22 or 21 percent of the electorate as opposed to 27 or 26, which would be much closer. You know, according to Pew, white evangelicals account for, I think, 16 or 17 percent of the overall you know, public demographically. And so they'd still be overrepresented at 21, 22. We just begin to see the uh, alignment that matched their, their, their actual representation as part of the public. That could be a potential game changer. If, if white evangelicals vote overwhelmingly for Trump, but their portion of the electorate drops off significantly, that is the kind of jolt that could lead real sort of Republican leadership to revisit their alliance with white evangelical. And because this would be happening in an atmosphere where white evangelicals were being catered to in the way that those who claim to represent them in D.C. and people like Robert Jeffers exactly the way they said they wanted to, like because these so-called self-appointed representatives of white evangelicals can't muster up really any criticism of Trump, it's going to be very difficult in this scenario, in like a post-2020 scenario, should Biden win, for that argument to be played out in a way that benefits, politically speaking, the, the power of white evangelicals. Like they're just going to have less of a less standing to, to sort of make the case that what went wrong is that the Republican Party wasn't friendly enough to white evangelicals. The much more likely scenario is going to be, look what happened with suburban women. Look what is happening with young people that attend church less, that are less religious. 2020 may not be the year where we see that drop off. We, we could see a 26, 27% white evangelical uh, turnout as a percentage of the electorate. And I would advise the Biden campaign to act as if that is going to be the case. My point here is just to put a marker down that things could turn very quickly, <laughs> very quickly, not just in terms of the overall electorate, but for the place of evangelicals in the Republican Party should both they lose the White House, should Republicans lose the White House, and for white evangelicals to show signs that they are no longer the overrepresented sort of electoral juggernaut that basically took Trump to the White House in 2016. That's just something to keep an eye out for. That'll be a major turn in the conversation if that happens and could lead to a period of disruption We've been in a period of political disruption when it comes to faith and politics for quite some time now. We could be entering into a new phase of that disruption. All right, folks, that's all. When you hear from me next, the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction, will be out. Uh, again, would urge you to pre-order that book now so you can get it. It'll be on your doorstep on July 21st. Uh, when we return, we'll have guests 
I didn't want to have a guest for this episode just because we had so much kind of news to cover um, and just kind of updates. I wanted to catch up with you, but uh, I'm excited about this rum. We have the conventions coming up and then it'll be the sprint to the general election. Uh, looking forward to uh, continuing this conversation with you. You can reach out to me on Twitter. Let me know who you want on as a guest. Let me know questions you have. Thanks to Stephanie Tate for that. Uh, the question about sort of exit polls and demographics. I should say, you know, I look to Ryan Burge for uh, a lot of these questions. And, and Ryan has been posting a bit on uh, sort of attrition among uh, certain religious demographics and how that could affect the election. And so would urge you to file, follow a Ryan, who's a great, great dude. All right. That's it. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Michael Weir. See you soon. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries Podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.